You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. Uh, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I'm also a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, and I write the Spoiler Alerts blog for the Washington Post. And I'm Heather Hurlbert, and I run the New Models of Policy Change Project at New America. And rumor has it that Dan is also declaring his allegiance to the Hartford Whalers this morning. It's true. As a child of Connecticut, this was the one professional sports team that we had growing up. And uh, I've truthfully never really followed hockey uh, after the Whalers uh, left Connecticut. But more importantly, uh, this is late August vacation blogging heads as far as I'm concerned. So uh, in contrast to normal blogging heads attire, I am wearing a t-shirt and a Whalers hat, and I have decided not to shave. <laughs> yes, and I um, wasn't able to join Dan in all of those practices, but in solidarity, well, in solidarity with a number of things, I am wearing my battered, faded ratty, yet still fully functional in containing my hair, NATO <laughs> anniversary hat. Oh, that was, that, oh, that was such a good symbol. That was such a good metaphor. Wow. That, that was not worthy of, that was, that was like much better than what should normally be for late August vacation blog events. Um, well, I bow in your general direction. Now. I'll share a dirty little secret about Washington. Um, yes. Which is that most of Washington, most of August, the weather is utterly disgusting and you don't want to be here. But number one, it usually does break by late in the month and right on schedule. It broke earlier this week and it's been very pleasant. But number two, no one else is here. So you can park everywhere. You can get reservations anywhere you want to eat. And you can get lots of writing and thinking done because no one else is around to, to disturb you. So actually, this is, you know, the, the secret is that you want to be away from sort of mid-late July, and you really, you really want to come back about now, honestly, and get a head start on everybody else. So, so I've had, I understand you only returned from vacation last night, whereas I have had a few days to, you know, I did lock myself out of the office computer because I couldn't remember my password. <laughs> I have nightmares along those lines, yes. But we are back. We are tanned, rested, and ready, and boy, is there a target-rich environment for us. So, um, Oh, it's just so rich. Um, so let, let's just start with a simple question that I'm going to throw to you, which is, what exactly is Donald Trump's position on immigration? I actually think that this fuffing back and forth about has he changed his position, is he changing his position, is completely missing the point. Donald okay. Trump's core position on immigration is that he or people appointed by him get to arbitrate who should be, are the arbiters of who is an American and who is not. Um, that, that there are, rather than there being a set of objective criteria or a set of political decisions, that his position is there are a set of subjective criteria which he gets to, which he gets to set. Um, you know, whether it's sort of that, well, for certain categories, if you fit into certain moral categories that he enunciates, there can be, or there can be a path to legalization. If my commission on Islam decides that you're the right kind of Muslim and that you have, you have, um, assimilated sufficiently to meet a standard that we in the executive branch, assuming he were to be in the executive branch set, then you can be a citizen here. 
but 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 I or people representing me or you know frankly people who look like me and come from the power base that I come from get to decide and that hasn't changed at all none of these alleged changes that maybe they're thinking about or maybe someone on the campaign who isn't Trump said or maybe he said on Tuesday and then Jeff Sessions said they weren't happening on Wednesday none of those proposed softenings change the reality that you know, basically, Donald Trump wants to go to change the, even if wildly imperfect and unfair and poorly executed immigration policy that we have, and change it to uh, basically an ideological test that he or people who work for him would get to administer. You know what? I actually have to give you credit because in some ways I think you have given far more coherence to what Trump is doing on immigration than I actually think even he has. Um, I mean, the way I read this is slightly different, which is Donald Trump's immigration plan is whatever causes Donald Trump's poll numbers to move up. Um, in some ways, what we're seeing now is a confluence of two things. The first is that it seems to have just occurred to Donald Trump that all of the policy positions that he enunciated back in the fall might be a wee bit difficult to actually implement. Uh, particularly the notion that you are going to take 11.3 illegal uh, residents in the United States and create a deportation force and get rid of them. Um, there's still things he hasn't changed on, like the wall and so forth. But the fact that he shifted on this in and of itself is remarkable because you could argue politicians do not always fulfill their promises. This is certainly the case, but but it's a myth. To know, it is a myth to believe that politicians don't want to implement most of their promises. Um, and this was in some ways Trump's core promise. And what I can only assume is that Trump has looked at the poll numbers and realizes that promises like this one, or like the, the wall and, and all of the, the nasty talk about uh, brown immigrants coming into the country, has actually cost him dramatically with the votes he needs to win the election. And therefore, he is trying ham-handedly to pivot away from that in such a way that he's not necessarily going to do better with minority voters, but he might do better with people like suburban women who want to hear Trump uh, speak in a kinder and gentler way towards people. Um, which leads to the hash that you know we have now, which is uh, of, of Trump's policy. And I, I agree with you. I think that the core philosophical element of Trump's policy is that I alone will solve this um, or the people that I appoint. Um, but can I, as an aside, just say, and, and I know this is, does not make me a big person, I'm a small person for admitting this, I am so enjoying the hardline immigration boosters of Trump twisting in the wind uh, as this sort of pivot is taking place. Well, I, I suppose that's something to enjoy. I guess um, I'm... I'm... I'm just back, look, I'm just back from walking my kid to middle school orientation, so maybe I'm a little emotional this morning. But one of the things that I always think about, you know, as, as my kid and I walk to his school, um, as we, you know, walk past the middle schooler in the headscarf and the middle schooler whose dad is an immigrant from India and the middle schooler who, like my child, has one Jewish parent and one Christian parent, and the, you know, the families who fled here from Ethiopia, and I could go on and on, but you get the idea. And I, I literally walked to, to walk my kid, my blonde haired, blue eyed kid to school. And I look at these kids and I just think, you know, how many of you guys are sitting around at home scared about what happens to, to you and your parents? So I, I really, I think that the, 
the the arguing over whether sort of Trump picks up this or that sort of specific piece of his overall policy a little bit misses the point, both for the reasons I said before, but also, frankly, because um, in some ways, Trump himself is beside the point that, you know, that he, that he does have, he does have, and he, and that he clearly speaks for a non-trivial swath of the U.S. population that also has, you know, frankly, it has this idea that immigration should be based on whether you share our cultural values or not. And, you know, Ben, ben Wittes um, at Lawfare at Brookings did a really terrific analysis of um, Trump's foreign policy speech, which was only 10 days ago now, seems like a lifetime, um, in, in which Trump, you know, laid out in really sort of chilling specificity how this would work for Muslim immigrants. Um, right. And Ben said, and I, I just think this is one of the best insights I've seen anywhere on, on Trump and, and where this is all coming from, is he said Trump is rejecting the idea that you can selectively assimilate. That, you know, for a couple hundred years, um, Orthodox Jews and Muslims and Catholics, and in some ways Mormons, even though that's a, a homegrown thing, have, um, have in important cultural ways rejected mainstream American white Protestant culture while yeah. immigrating, while assimilating very fully on the, and successfully on the economic side. And each one of those groups has had major struggles and faced and still faces major bigotry, but also has really been able to establish itself here while still being distinctive and keeping to its distinctive faith and cultural traditions, you know, in a way that will get you thrown off a beach in France. Um, and Trump is saying, no, I'm, I'm going to decide or the government is going to decide what um, what assimilation is sufficient and what is not. And that, um, that should be deeply troubling to everybody. And it, it's, you know, having now been sort of unleashed into the public sphere, I don't think it's going to go away when, um, when Trump loses this election. And that I find really deeply worrying. Okay. So let me, I'm going to, I'm going to take a more optimistic position on this. Um, in the following sense, I would say two things on on this sort of Trump attempt to pivot, which is first, for me, the most frustrating aspect of this whole thing, and in some ways, the way in which I find Trump's immigration rhetoric the most disconcerting, um, is this notion that what the, the the sort of hardline immigration position on what U.S. immigration policy should be has always said been the following: first, we need to get our borders under control then we can decide what to do with the illegals living in the United States. And every piece of data that I have seen suggests that, in fact, actually the opposite is true. Um, that since 2008, illegal immigration flows into the United States are, if anything, a net negative. Uh, that we are not having waves of undocumented immigrants coming into this country. We are not having waves of Syrian refugees coming into this country. Uh, all of that is basically a myth that actually the core problem right now with respect to U.S. immigration policy is in fact what to do with the 11.3 million um, uh, people who are living in the United States that don't have, you know, proper documentation. And so in fact, I would say that you want to reverse that. You want to first deal with that. Um, eventually, you are going to have a problem with illegal immigration. If the U.S. economy recovers, you know, and outpaces growth everywhere else, Im illegal immigration is going to be an issue. 
So I'm not saying that that's not something you don't, you know, you shouldn't be addressing. But the notion that that's what you have to address first before you address the other thing, I think, is incredibly blinkered. Um, and it's the thing that it, Trump's campaign, I found, ha has been the most disconcerting about it, uh, because it's completely distorted the policy debate. Now, that said, let me offer one optimistic note here, um, because what you just said about the idea of, well, you know, Trumpism is going to survive Trump, that we're going to hear this kind of ugly rhetoric, you know, long after this campaign has uh, has been settled and so on and so forth. I think I would have believed uh, even a week ago. But weirdly, I actually think Trump's pivot over this past week has this is the one salutary benefit of this pivot, which is it has exposed the degree to which Trump has cravenly willing to try to alter his policy positions as a way to improve his poll numbers. Um, and you can the reason this matters is that you could argue that the one thing Donald Trump had going for him um, as the general election was going forward was the notion that Trump was willing to somehow say things and he didn't care what the repercussions were. Um, that he, you know, that again, this notion that he was not going to be politically correct, that he was going to say, this is what I care about, and, and you know, these are the core issues, and we're going to go forward. And I'm speaking for the broad swath uh, sw uh, of, you know, working class white Americans that are not, um, that are not being listened to by elites. Except it turns out now that Trump is trying to pivot, um, and he's doing so in the most awkward way possible. But it actually suggests that presumably the very person that all of these people have said, oh, no one's speaking for us. Finally, this guy is speaking for us. And, you know, there'll be more like him. It turns out that even this guy recognizes that in order to perform respectably in a general election, he actually can't talk the way he's talking. And so as a result, even he is shifted. And it, it therefore suggests that this pathway to winning an election is truly blinkered, that it can't succeed. Um, and so in that sense, I'm actually wondering if you will see successors to Donald Trump. Well, I hope you're right, but I fear that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to I wanna put forward a, a couple reasons. First is, you know, unfortunately, this idea that you have to do uh, border security first is not new. It's not Donald Trump's idea. It's Republican right. Party orthodoxy. Um, right. And it's That's a great true. it's a great example of a place where it's really fun to blame Donald Trump for something. But if you remember the you know sort of millions of years ago that are the Republican primary debates, there was a systematic process that went on of getting just about every single nominee to renounce any idea that he had ever had that maybe you should pursue the policy path that you described. And that mm -hmm. systematically every single one of them was sort of, you know, renounced that and marched back to border security first. So, you know, um, even as I think the, the position you described has been Democratic Party orthodoxy, and it was um, sort of the pro-business wing of the Republican Party orthodoxy, but they got beaten, they got beaten back from it. And, mm. and why did they get beaten back from it? brings me to the thing I'm, I'm really pessimistic about, which is, um, yes, I'm right there with you on what the numbers actually say about immigration and what kind of crisis we do or don't have. But I think we just, it is reality 
that, and by the way, not in communities like where I live, where, you know, the schools are, are 40% to plurality minority, where we have one of the largest populations of unaccompanied Central American kids, you know, one of the highest concentrations of African American voters in the country, blah, blah, blah. But in states that are still large majority white, right. where immigration went from you know, immigration where the presence of refugees or minorities in a community tripled, and that meant going from three families to nine families, maybe, or nine families to 27 families, or 27 families to 100 families, and then you could afford a store or a restaurant, um, that those are the communities um, that feel like they have a an immigration crisis. There's a wave, yes, that yeah. they're like, they're being overrun. And, and yeah, and the crisis for them is a cultural crisis. And you know, from where I sit, it's it's a racism problem, but that doesn't, it doesn't, you know, just me saying, oh, tisk tisk, you guys are racist, that doesn't, it doesn't change the problem, and it is not going to change their voting habits, and my pessimism is that as long as there is a sort of a pool of rage and fear that is happy to express itself through candidates like Donald Trump, it will continue to be irresistible for politicians to find ways to to sort of be the guy. You know, I guarantee, you know, you don't think Ted Cruz is sitting home figuring out how to get Trump voters? Um, maybe this is an interesting place to segue into um, sort of the, the week in who's opted to work on the Trump transition team. Because, yes. you know, why are some of those folks doing that? Because they are studying how do we... How do we recruit those voters? How do we be the guy? How do we be the guy who can recruit those voters, but also be a little more smooth um, and not get down in some of the holes that Trump has gotten into and actually have a shot nationally? Right. So this, this, uh, you know, in terms of segueing, this uh, is worth bringing up. So Trump, I believe, has attracted two relatively, I guess, high quality staffers, which has been a problem for him, uh, particularly on the foreign policy side. That essentially no one of any um, Decent reputation has basically agreed to work for Donald Trump. Uh, this week, however, Trump's transition team, not his campaign, his transition team, uh, scored two uh, people that would be generally thought of as competent or even respected. Uh, one is Ed Fulner, who was the former president of the Heritage Foundation think tank, and the second escapes me. Uh, his name's John Rader, and okay. he was the counsel, which is to say the senior lawyer on the majority side of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and the other thing that's, that's interesting about that is there, there's a whole sort of Tennessee connection, um, because, of course, the chair of that committee is Bob Corker. Um, and Trump, uh, this guy who went from Corker staff, had previously worked on the Romney transition and is working for another Tennessee Republican luminary who had also worked on the Romney personnel side of, of the transition. So, so you know, you ask your, I mean, and and people in Washington have been scratching their heads um, about Corker, who's generally thought of as a fairly pragmatic, not an ideologue, um, not yeah. in many of the crazy places that Trump is on on foreign policy issues. But you know, if you again, Tennessee is just ground zero for this kind of people who feel that. Economically and culturally, the country's left them behind. Um, it's not as ethnically diverse as many other parts of the country have been. So, um, you know, 
A mosque opens where I live or where you live, it's not a big deal. Mosques have been a huge deal, source of controversy, really ugly yeah. violence in Tennessee. So, you know, what I think you're seeing is is it's it's one swath of the country where politicians are looking at this from a sort of I hate to say this, pragmatic political viewpoint. Okay, these are our voters going to Trump. What can we do to keep these voters? I suppose, although, I mean, again, the thing that keeps coming back to mind is, this is where, again, I'll, I'll persist in my optimism. You're correct that there is a vein of voters that will respond very strongly to this kind of rhetoric and this kind of, of uh, policy articulation, for lack of a better way of thinking about it. But on the other hand, you know, there's a reason why Pete Wilson's name keeps being brought up as you see this kind of campaign strategy. And, and it refers to, you know, the governor of California, who back in the mid-90s when I was living there, uh, ran really hard. He was trailing in the, the polls to, I believe, uh, Jerry Brown's daughter, uh, Kathleen Brown, is for governor of California. He ran hard on Prop 187, which would have denied uh, state benefits to, or health, benef uh, health benefits, I think, to the children of illegal immigrants. Um, it was a successful gambit for Wilson. Wilson won re-election in doing that, and in the process basically destroyed the California Republican Party for the next generation. Um, and in some ways it still is in a, uh, still in utter tatters as a result of this. Um, and so this is where, again, I would push back slightly in that I, I think you're right that, that a smart politician will try to find a way to simultaneously co-opt these voters without alienating the rest of what would be a putative GOP coalition. Um, I think I, I guess my, my gut tells me, though, is that any politician who's actually halfway intelligent, and say what you will about Ted Cruz, he's, he's more than halfway intelligent, recognizes that to do that, you can't do what Trump has done, which is you can't just be blunt and go full racist. Um, you're going to have to, you know, talk about border enforcement, but you're also going to have to talk about a pathway to American citizenship. In essence, you're going to have to see a retreat from the kind of rhetoric that Trump has espoused. This is, I, and again, I could be wrong. You're absolutely right about that. Um, but I, I, I think that the Trump what 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 Trump's pivot this week has demonstrated is the hard limits of the Trump strategy of trying to win an election. So you and I don't usually get into our Republican and Democratic corners quite as, as vividly on this podcast, but I am going to push you a little bit here. Okay. Because, um, yes, it may be that the, the, the Trump um, personality as presidential campaign strategy, I'll call it, um, you know, it does look like um, I'm knocking on my table. Um, but it does look like its limit is somewhere yeah. below 40% of the electorate. Um, and just to, to, to reassure um, to, to my nervous, my nervous <laughs> viewers and friends, of whom I know there are many, um, I actually had a, a very interesting email correspondence with a journalist this week, and, I, and he wrote to me about an issue when I said, oh, aren't you working on presidential politics? And he said, well, we're not allowed to say this in public, but... She's going to win. It's not really that interesting. I'm trying to, I have to keep doing it, but I'm trying to find other interesting things to work on at the same time. Oh, damn. Wow. Okay. That's, so, that's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, your mainstream media at work. Now, God, I'll probably be some kind, I'll, having just said that, I'll probably become some kind of like clip of the alt right about how the fix is in, won't I? Oh, well. Um, anyway, but. The, Go ahead, Cuck. <laughs> Sorry. 
Can I just, I'm just going to like pause and say that I just find, I, it really bums me out how, how quickly that particular phrase has been adopted by sort of centrists and, and progressives who like use it to kind of try to seem clever in the know. And it's just so like, it's so outrageously offensive on so many levels. Um, I, but I just, I really, I, I'm like shocked how unpleasant it was to hear you say it. I, I'll just, I'll just note that. Okay, um, I apologize for that. No, no, I, no, I, I think of it as a strategy of, of totally lampooning the, the word, but I, I take, I mean, in some ways it's just replaced rhino is the, the <laughs> word you would use, but I take your point. Go ahead. Right. But, you know, so the thing is, Ted Cruz's po policy positions, for example, on how we should combat terrorism are mm -hmm. really not very different from Ted from um, Trump's. Donald Trump, yeah. Um, policy positions on immigration, really, once you strip away the racism and you get down to, uh, or sorry, once you strip away the verbal racism and you get down yeah. to what policies should we actually do, should we let refugees in? Um, you know, what should we do about folks who are already here out of status? There's really not that much difference. So sort of the future you're describing is in some ways exactly the future I'm describing and that I'm afraid of that, yay, great, we don't have hateful rhetoric anymore, but we have, we've opened the door for these really hateful policies. Well, okay, so we should probably move on at some point, but I would, I would push back on two things. First, eliminating the hateful rhetoric is in and of itself really, really important. Um, you know, in Agreed. some ways, I think the most Agreed. damning part about this this election cycle has been the degree to which Trump has seemingly normalized uh, political talk that was previously thought to be out of bounds, that that was thought to be so toxic that you can't actually um, bring it up. Um, and you know, as someone who is enough of a Burkean to think that you know pleasing illusions matter, I like to think that you know in our political discourse, not making racist statements. Uh, is a good thing if, if, if it turns out that you can't do that. Um, now, that said, in terms of the actual policy, then it becomes a question of whether, you know, you're, you're making an assumption that Ted Cruz will be the successor to Donald Trump come 2020. First of all, based on how well Ted Cruz is polling right now, I'm not sure that's actually correct. Um, and I think really, in some ways, the, the truly interesting question will be, uh, in light of your mainstream media's uh, assessment, is what the fallout will be in the GOP after this election. Yeah. Um, that if you have an election where Donald Trump is, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't crack 40% in the popular vote, the Republicans lose the Senate and they lose seats in the House. You know, that if you think 2012 was going to cause uh, an autopsy, I'll, I'll be curious to see what 2016 does in that respect. Um, and you're right, it, it is still possible that you could have a Trump-like candidate or Trump-like policies being articulated come 2020, uh, you know, I I will be on the optimistic side and say that, you know, the for political parties to exist, they kind of have to win elections. And if the Republicans lose a presidential election, they frankly should have won in 2016. Someone is going to have to point out that the GOP for six of the last seven electoral cycles will have lost the popular vote. And that's not a good thing. Um, and that's going to require a fundamental rethink. Well, I will just point out that one of the people who wrote the 2012 autopsy gave up yeah. and quit the party in the last couple of weeks. So um, I I mean, I, there's you're absolutely right that the what happens after the election is, is, is the key question. And so, you know, on the one hand, is there a rethink within the party? On the other hand, what the heck is the party after the election? And, you know, a fascinating thing 
thing to stay tuned on. And maybe I'll, I'll sort of pivot again by um, picking up on Burke and, and pleasing illusions. Um, one, of the, one of the really positive, one of the silver linings of this, this horror that we're living through is, I have to say, the um, conservative community in its various guises it is just, there's incredibly interesting analysis of the relationship between um, politics and foreign policy coming out of the right right now that you know mm -hmm. in the way that sort of staring into the abyss promotes creativity in a way that trying to win an election frankly does not promote creativity it promotes right. some other stuff <laughs> but but there's just really really interesting um intellectual work coming out from from various ideological strands of, of conservatism and i i find myself frankly spending a lot of time reading um, various, you know, the American conservative, the national interest, just various places. And I'm, you know, I, again, I'm frankly learning a lot and I'm learning a lot about my side of the aisle too from benefiting from people who, you know, have that, that detachment that only this degree of pain and defeat can, <laughs> can confer. Uh -huh. But, so one of the other interesting things that's happening in, um, intellectual circles in, in D.C. is maybe what we'll call a, a renaissance of the realists. And so you have a sudden sort of swarm of, of people and factions trying to claim the realists' mantle. And I was kind of laughing on, um, on Twitter earlier this week when Steve Clemens wrote a piece in The Atlantic uh, casting Joe Biden as, and I quote, a personality realist. Now... Back when I was in college and studying these things, um, somebody who proposed, who repeatedly proposed dividing countries in thirds along ethnic lines would not have been classed a realist, but, you know, um, maybe times have changed. Um, and so I was kind of joking on Twitter that we're now in the age of the epithet realist, that, that everybody, <laughs> everybody can be a realist with an epithet in front of it. Um, but I am... Um, I threatened before we started taping that I was going to turn this section into a, into a rant, and I'm I'm going to try not to. But every one of I've been to a couple of very nice dinners and lunches and panel discussions in in recent days, and I just keep waiting for someone who identifies as a realist to talk about a region of the world that is not Europe. And to talk about people in a region of the world that is not Europe as actors rather than subjects of American action. Ah. And I'm just, I'm just sort of scratching my head about, I mean, because of course one of the reasons realists are resurgent is they think we should have fewer wars in the Middle East. So surely they observe that there are regions populated by peoples who also have strategic interests and act on them. And, and why is it? Why is American realism so blind to everybody that's not white? Oh, let's see. Where to begin with this? Um, first of all, your your point about epithet realism does. I have now like suffering flashbacks to uh, the great liberalis the li great liberal realist wars within the IR Academy of the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, and two thousands, in which inevitably people would put forward, in terms of U.S. foreign policy debates, arguments of what we need is a liberal realism, or what I call a realist liberalism, or, you know, some combination, some, you know, hybrid of the two. Um, 
indeed one of my favorite paragraphs that I've ever written for a scholarly uh, journal was a paragraph where I said, trying to articulate what realists actually want for American foreign policy is difficult because there are so many different variants of realism. And I was then able to list something like 10 different forms of adjectival realism, you know, structural realism, defensive realism, uh, offensive realism, liberal realism, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and really, the point of that paragraph is to suggest that realists sometimes don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, so that, that was the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that, uh, you know, it, with respect to whether realists talk about things outside of Europe, I think, to be fair, they do. Um, as you say, realists are actually, I would argue, more, far more obsessed with the Middle East, um, in my opinion, than Europe, in the sense that they're obsessed with U.S. mistakes in the Middle East, and to them, the Middle East is the the perfect example of the non-realist nature of American foreign policy, because in their mind, a realist would look at this and think, this is no longer a strategically vital part uh, of the globe for the United States, you know, due to things like increasing energy independence and so on and so forth. Therefore, we should not be uh, nearly as enmeshed as we are with our allies there, we should focus on the areas that matter, which would be Europe and the Pacific Rim. Um, and therefore, we should engage in, you know, this larger form of uh, strategic pivot, as it were. Um, so in that sense, I do think that realists talk a little bit more about other parts of the globe. It's just that when they talk about other parts of the globe, they don't sound terribly distinctive. Um, realists, when it comes to the Pacific Rim, sound pretty much like the Obama administration. Uh, they're pretty big fans of the rebalance. They think that it's it's worth balancing against China or worth, uh, in some ways, realists are far more uh, sinophobic than the American foreign policy community writ large, I would argue. But that doesn't get talked about that much because, frankly, you know, the Pacific Rim doesn't uh, generate as many headlines as the Middle East does. That's thing one, I would say. Thing two, I would say, is that there's a additional sociological point to be made here about realists, which is never underestimate the ability of realists to just personally piss off everyone else. Um, because that's just who they are. So I, I had some fun uh, about a week ago writing a, a post, writing something for the Washington Post, basically arguing, look, you know, there's been a lot of national security letters uh, written by conservatives and bipartisan groups of foreign policy people saying Trump is unfit to be president. And I suggested that realists need to do this as well, because in some ways what Trump has done is articulated what, you know, Trump is, there, there's a whiff of realism in, in, some, in some of the things that Trump says, but only in the sense that Trump is like a stopped clock, that every once in a while he's, he's right, but for the wrong reasons. Um, and that realists, if they want their paradigm and they want their worldview, to continue to be a viable one, should actually write a letter saying we do not in any way endorse Donald Trump. And furthermore, he is actually, you know, uh, maligning the very worldview we're articulating. Um, Steve Walt at Foreign Policy has basically made this this kind of argument. And I was suggesting, look, realists need to get together inside this. But I what think the, the key what, problem, sorry, no, 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 it's just the key problem in that sentence is realists need to get together. Yes. So I wrote this. and. You know, and, and, and I should also say, admit that I wrote this having felt a little bad because back in February I was trolling realists saying, well, when are realists going to endorse Donald Trump because he's sounding a little realisty? Um, and realists, you know, were perfectly fair in pushing back on that. 
This time around, however, what was interesting was the degree to which realists pushed back along the lines of, why do we need to get together? I don't think we need to get together. What are you talking about? You know, Steve Wald has already written something like this. Shut up. You know, we, we, uh, why, why can't we focus on Clinton's sins and, you know, so on and so forth? And I, I confess that part of the reason I'm enjoying this is that realism is ostensibly all about making the hard, difficult, uncomfortable, lesser of two evils choice. And without question, if realists have to make this decision right now in terms of American presidential candidates, they should be endorsing Hillary Clinton. And guess what? Realists don't want to do this um, because they're just an ornery bunch <laughs> that does not like being told that they have, you know, that that, that this is what they're going to have to do. Um, and I think this is not an insignificant reason why realists have so little influence over American foreign policy. Realists would argue it's because of these structural factors and that the American foreign policy establishment is, is overly liberal and so on and so forth. I would suggest it's because realists are really, really, really bad at convincing or persuading others. Um, that essentially the ideal realist intellectual position is to be isolated and right. Um, and that they would much prefer that position to actually engaging in the sort of hard politics of persuasion. So I am struggling with a secret desire, which I will confess to the internet here, and then I guess it won't be, I won't have to struggle with it anymore, to go for out. you, I, and the internet. Right, go to ahead. go out and print up either buttons or bumper stickers that say realists for Jill Stein, and then <laughs> kind of um, anonymously mail them to people. <laughs> um, but, um, that would also, of course, be an interesting challenge because there is a there is a streak of misogyny that runs through um, academic realism, if I may say so. Yeah, that there's some history. I, I would like to think the new generation is not quite as bad, but yeah, I think historically you're fair in saying. Right, but also the old generation hasn't gone away yet, so <laughs> yes, new, that's the, true. In fairness to the new generation, they may well be better, but it's kind of hard to. Um, I actually would, you know, again, as I sort of have been making the realist rounds in in, in DC recently. Um, I think there are a lot more crypto realists or hyphenated realists or um, those of us who, who like to leaven our international our, our internationalism with a heavy <laughs> dose of realism. There are a yeah. lot more of us around than get given credit for. And part of it may be because, as you say, it's a tendency that attracts loners. But also, I think it's because um, when you put people in governing situations and in situations where they actually wield power, you know, um, the classic American foreign policy is that you take one from ideology A and one from ideology B. And so people who might think of themselves as, as realists um, sort of suddenly get in positions where they no longer count as realists to real realists. And I think, you know, Obama is a great example of this. And um, Derek Chalet's new book, the long game, which, you know, basically tries, oh, that's the, so I, I have pulled from Derek's book the idea that Obama is a checklist realist. That's my epithet. <laughs> Derek, Derek doesn't, Derek talks about the checklist manifesto. He doesn't call Obama a checklist realist. I, I do that for him. Derek, you can send me a check now. Um, but, you know, so this element of, um, in some ways, the, the worldview that, that, that Derek holds personally and that he describes Obama as holding is, is quite realist, but the decisions that um, he uses that worldview to take have been, you know, certainly in a way that, that many academic realists don't, don't recognize, don't want to claim. Um, right. And Tom, Tom Wright at Brookings has 
has this hilarious point, which is he says, you know, realists ought to have claimed Obama much sooner um, and didn't want to, both because of the sort of not banding together thing that you describe, but also because Obama wasn't, a per Obama's not a perfect realist. You know, one no. of his, one of his great gifts is that he defies easy categorization. Um, and Tom's point is, um, imagine if early on in this administration, people had banded together and said, you know, we're going to make a real effort to defend this guy and promote him and claim him as ours. And, and, you know, how, how, how would the landscape look different if, if there had been that sort of effort to, to claim the presidency? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. I would agree. Um, I, I would say the other, I would, so a few things on this. The, the first is, is that I, you are correct, I think, in your presumption that a lot more people in the foreign policy community have at least some, or if, if not realist curious, at least some sort of Did acknowledgement. Just, wait, stop. Did you just say realist curious? Yeah, sorry. That's a, no, no, we're pausing because that's a fabulous coinage right there. <laughs> uh, um, that's going to be the next set of bumper stickers. I am realist go. curious. Uh, that, that, you know, and, and indeed in this survey that I, you know, the, the, for this book project I'm working on, I, I surveyed about 200 you know, foreign policy elites and ask them, what, how would you describe your worldview? Um, and realists did remarkably well. It was actually the modal outcome. It wasn't, you know, it, was a, it wasn't a majority or anything, but a lot of people think of themselves as realists. Now, part of the issue here might be that what someone in the foreign policy community thinks of themselves as in terms of realists might not be what an academic realist uh, would define as realism. I mean, this is another aspect in which there's a problem because academic realists, really, they're kind of like the medieval you know, Catholic Church in terms of uh, deciding who is in the church and out of the church, and that's another separate issue. Um, but I do want to ask you, you know, while we've been talking about whether realists will endorse Clinton, the, the biggest realist of them all, uh, is one that, that Clinton has been pursuing. One of the things that I found fascinating over the past month since the conventions has been the degree to which uh, the Clinton campaign has sort of sought out Republican national security types as a way, you know, okay, to I'm sort gonna, of broaden... I'm going to interrupt you and stop you right there because yeah. you are actually reflecting a core misapprehension which has fed the news cycle for the entire month of August and is just flat out wrong. Okay, um, go ahead. There is... One sentence in one Politico story anonymously sourced to somebody saying, quote, the Clinton campaign is putting out feelers. Um, okay. There so, is, and I am, you know, and like I got called a lot by reporters about this. I called, I dutifully called the campaign. Uh, um, so I, nobody has put out any feelers any place that I'm connected with. Just so first of all, it's not like, all 500 of the Clinton foreign policy people are frantically running around, you know, figuring out how we can recruit Republicans, which which uh -huh. is sort of what it's gotten turned into in the media. Um, so so there's that. Um, and also, in fact, what the weird thing about being a Clinton foreign policy Democrat has been you don't have to put out feelers. People are scratching on your door wanting right. to help. So, right. so the story, the story is just wrong and has, has, has gotten just is, is reported totally wrong. But you're, you're right to bring it up because it has, um, it has ignited this, this little mini firestorm on the left because I think it, it, and I gotta say, I think this is why Politico and everybody else pushed it as hard as they did. 
it fits into this pre-existing narrative that um, realists and neoconservatives are so smart that us like stupid liberals and especially us stupid girl liberals are either so stupid that we're just constantly like ready to be sort of, you know, I'm trying to think of a politer word than the one that's coming to mind, but that we're just like, our minds are like jelly ready to be taken over by Henry Kissinger at any moment. <laughs> You know, like any second, like Henry Kissinger could whee, pop up behind my head and start talking to you in a bad German accent, um, which is really, you know, just deeply offensive. <laughs> um, okay, that, I'm, I'm just trying to process this yeah, whole that. He wasn't, that was quite the, he wasn't ready for me to go there, folks. I was not ready for you to go there. I do like the, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm very amused by the image. That what, that what the left is generally concerned about is the notion of, like, girl Democrats suddenly going, oh, my God, it's Henry Kissinger, you know, and, and, uh, and losing. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I like this idea of the foreign policy community as high school. But but you're, you're correct. So I, I take your point that maybe the Clinton campaign is not doing a, a overt uh, recruiting effort with respect to Republican national security types, although I do think what I was referring to more was like the outreach to people like Meg Whitman um, and other traditional GOP supporters who actually now are helping to fund the, the Clinton campaign. But that's neither here nor there. What I'm most interested in is this Kissinger thing, which is fascinating to me. Um, the political story that you referenced, you know, talks about the idea that of all the GOP national security letters that have been signed, the sort of big names are not there. Condi Rice, Jim Baker, George Shultz, and Henry Kissinger. Now, there actually was a story that I read from about Hoover that suggested that George Shultz in no way, shape, or form is going to support Donald Trump. But the most interesting name is Kissinger, um, because this flared up a bit during, I think around February, there was a debate uh, between Sanders and Clinton where Sanders excoriated Clinton for the fact that she talks to Kissinger on things like China. Um, and, and then this, Isn't this it funny that nobody minds that Barack Obama talks to Kissinger? I that mean, is Nobody yeah. minds that John Kerry talks to Kissinger. Or yes, and just, and, and just saying, it actually just it also it also highlights the fact that Kissinger is like this like specter shattering over the campaign because Kissinger has talked to Donald Trump as well um, back in May. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think what I do find interesting is the the unique fury that Kissinger provokes in so many people in a way that other former secretaries of state that frankly have just as bad a track record or, you know, a bad track record does not invite. Yeah. Um, and I wrote about this uh, earlier this week about what is it about Henry Kissinger that seems to inspire this degree of vitriol and hatred. Not that I'm defending Henry Kissinger. Actually, my opinion on him has is, is changed, uh, you know, somewhat as well. Um, but I do find it fascinating that that somehow... The idea that Kissinger might endorse Hillary Clinton is seen as the most damning indictment of Hillary Clinton uh, that you can possibly imagine, which it, I would think it would be safe to say is somewhat blinkered. So I have I have a unified cultural field theory of Henry Kissinger. Oh, okay, let's hear this. So, but the first thing I'm just going to say is the idea that people who are ferociously defending doing a deal with Iran think that we should talk more with Iran and fear that Hillary Clinton will not support the Iran deal strongly enough, the idea of them spending a lot of time shrieking with rage about the person who talked to China, like... Maoist China, yes. Maoist China, thank you, yes. I get a little, I get a little frustrated by that. 
Um, Fair enough. But so here's my here's my unified cultural theory. Um, American foreign policy on at every ideological plane is dominated by baby boomers still. Um, the millennial, you know, us poor whimpering Gen Xers are just kind of trailing along. You know, we had yeah. our one president. We may have our one secretary of defense in Michelle Flournoy. Um, frankly, um, I don't think in, I'm trying to think, I apologize if I forget somebody, but none of the people that I think are top contenders for secretary of state are Gen Xers. So, you know, it, and on the left, the left opposition to, um, to democratic establishment foreign policy is also dominated by baby boomers and by baby boomers who were sixties anti-war activists. Um, okay. and the institutions that remain such as they are of, of left foreign policy are all sort of 60s era institutions. And if you came up in that community, you know, Henry Kissinger, you cut your teeth on Henry Kissinger um, right. in a funny way, um, which may explain why he looks so terrible. Um, <laughs> but so it, it both reflects that the people who are, who are shaping opinion in the the Sanders left, um, you know, Bernie's uh, sorry, um, Henry Kissinger is their is their boogeyman, is their organizing principle in a way that nobody subsequent has been. Um, I do think there's also Henry Kissinger is easy to hate because he's a foreigner with a thick accent. You know, I just Ooh. I just did that myself. But wow. you do. It's a lot easier to hate on Henry Kissinger than it is on Condoleezza Rice, for example. Yes. Um, even though one could argue that her tenure had larger failures and fewer compensatory successes. You know, she didn't, she didn't, ha she doesn't have a, a Nixon goes I to China. I would completely agree with your, if, if we were confining it to national security advisor, I would completely agree. I think Clinton, I, I think actually Rice, the secretary of state is underestimated, but that's, keep going. Certainly, certainly given what she, what she had to deal with, I would, yeah, I, yeah. I, I would, I would, would agree with that. But then there's one more point that, that I think really has to, has to be made here. And that is that, um, the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party does not have, does not have a foreign policy platform that it is for. It has a, a number of things that it's against, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have anything sort of alternative to talk about. Right. So um, it, you don't have the sort of, we're outraged because you don't oppose TPP. Oh, wait, you do oppose TPP. We're outraged because you don't support the Iran deal. Oh, wait, you do support the Iran deal. We're outraged, you know. Okay, so th there's, not a, there's not a sort of, there's not a positive thing. So then the easiest thing to organize around from the left is, is hating on somebody. And as was noted, Henry Kissinger is, is you know, is just is a gift from, a gift from heaven. Mm -hmm. so, that's I, my uni so that's my unified theory of Henry Kissinger. Okay, I will put forward my unified theory, and then we should uh, wrap, probably wrap up pretty quickly. Um, I think, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I would offer an alternative uh, explanation for this, which is a three-part uh, story. The first part is that Kissinger's sort of reputation, or Kissinger, the, the, the perspective, the, the, the consensus take on Kissinger, I think, has been altered slightly over the last 10 years, in no small part due to work like, let's say, Gary Bass's uh, The Blood Telegram, um, which has exposed the degree to which Kissinger was culpable for things like the genocide in, in Bangladesh. Um, the degree to which Kissinger was a sort of cheerleader for 
uh, coups in Latin America. And in some ways, a lot of the documents that have been released reveal Kissinger not so much as sort of a cool-headed realpolitik kind of guy, but rather a little bit more of a sort of macho posturing, you know, frankly racist in some ways in terms of his attitudes towards Indira Gandhi. Or, uh, to or which people you. on the left would say, we told you so at the time. It has oh, God, there... I'm not going to, in some ways, I'm not so much talking about the left, I'm talking about sort of the general, more <laughs> wider public attitude about Kissinger. Um, the second thing, and I think this is particularly true, is that unlike a lot of other former policy principles, Kissinger has demonstrated absolutely zero remorse for the things that the left has excoriated for him for no. uh, when he was in office. Um, you know, remorse goes a long way. Uh, you know, Bob McNamara is not held in the same kind of... Uh, contemptuous regard that, that Kissinger is, uh, particularly among the left. Uh, but the third and I think most important thing, and I think this is what drives truly people on the left crazy, is the what they think of as the gap between Kissinger's actual record and the regard that Kissinger has held among the foreign policy community, which is Kissinger is still remarkably influential, you know, both through his consulting shop and the very fact that people like Clinton and Trump still listen to him. Um, and I think that's the thing that sends the left into true paroxysms of rage. That, you know, the fact that Kissinger is still seen as an esteemed, um, you know, uh, person with gravitas, to them is just the perfect, for the left, the perfect indictment of the foreign policy establishment. Well, I'm going to, um, at the risk of accusing you of left-splaining to me, um, I am just... I like left splaining. That's a good we've, one. We've, then we had several good coinages this, on this This has been a this good neologism one. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but... Um, I think you're absolutely right at the fury that Kissinger is still held in high regard. Yeah. And also that, you know, unlike, I think McNamara is an instructive contrast because actually you may underestimate how much McNamara is despised on the left. That's but possible, yes. McNamara is not out there writing columns and, you know, pretending that he advises people. So um, I think if that McNamara... That might be because he's, isn't he dead? He, a, he's dead, but B, before he's dead, he, before he was dead, he, he, he didn't, did feel, yeah. he did, well, and he felt that he had something to repent of, actually. Right, okay. And yes, he exactly. chose That's my point. not to be in the public eye in, in quite the same way. And, you know, when he yes. was in the public eye, it was through making a documentary or being in a documentary where he talked quite candidly about what he thought he got wrong. Um, right. So I think you're absolutely right that it's, it's Kissinger's sort of unrepentantness that, that drives the left nuts. Um, but at the same time, I do think that it's so convenient to believe that he's really influential. Yes, and, that's fair. You know, it's just not, again, um, I have been, I've rattled around the DC foreign policy establishment a long time, and I have never been in a meeting with decision makers when somebody said, well, Henry Kissinger says we should do X. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Okay. And on that, maybe maybe on that note. Well, we we should, we can close with one or two minutes, but I think you wanted to talk about uh, what we should see post Labor Day in terms of the election. Right. So I was going to say, um, yeah. we wish uh, you know a happy Labor Day and a, a return to all of our viewers. And the next time the next time we see you, um, we promise not to be wearing silly hats. A. Uh, B, it does look as if um, the Obama administration is determined to bring TPP forward. So post-Labor Day, you will see a TPP campaign, uh, which is mm -hmm. going to be fascinating on a number of policy and political levels. Um, 
you will see on September 7th something quite unprecedented, which is that NBC and the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America oh, right. are hosting a national security forum in which Clinton and Trump will appear on TV back to back, not on stage at the same time, but before the same audience and um, answer questions about veterans issues. And that, you know, what that leads me to wonder is, you know, frankly, does that give Trump um, an excuse to skip one or more of the debates? Is this NBC making sure that it gets a candidate for him, huh. even if Trump walks away from the debate? So, so those are two. Those are two security things to watch for right after Labor Day. What's on your list? Um, well, I believe a month from today, I could be correct, will be the first presidential debate uh, if all goes according to plan. Um, I heard. There, I heard there's an NFL game that night. <laughs> Labor this way. I I do not believe that Trump will skip any of the debates um, because he can't afford to do that. Frankly, uh, I mean, unless there is a truly significant shift in the polls. Um, I think even Trump would acknowledge he is trailing badly. Um, and if Trump is trailing badly and then decides I'm going to blow off the debates, that will not look good at all. Uh, so he's going to have to participate in the, in the, the foreign policy, uh, or he's going to have to participate in the, the next presidential debate. So I think that, I mean, let's face it, at this point in the presidential election, there are only two things that are really going to change uh, the status quo. Thing one would be is if there was some massive external shock, uh, like 2008 or you know a, a 9/11 style terrorist attack, that would fundamentally alter the terms of the debate. Um, or second, one of the presidential debates. Although even here, I think the the debates themselves are usually um, journalists like to uh, grossly exaggerate the effect of those debates. Um, and I'm also convinced that in some ways Hillary Clinton is the candidate tailor made. Uh, to deal with Donald Trump on a debating stage. Um, I think the thing that I will be interested in seeing going forward is whether any of the third-party candidates will qualify for those presidential debates, because that would, in some ways, be interesting uh, in terms of changing the dynamics. Um, and beyond that, I'm still suffering from summer brain, so I can't even wrap my head around the notion that uh, the fall is starting, and, and we're going to have to pay attention to uh, uh, to different sets of national security issues. Yeah. On the third party issue, um, actually, a friend of mine ran into Bill Weld on the Acela recently, ah, and well. which which led me to look up what their numbers are, what the Johnson Weld numbers are, and they yep. they they have not managed to get above ten percent, and they have to get fifteen percent for right. The it's debates. fifteen, and so, I think if they were close to fifteen, they'd probably make an exception, but I don't think they're close. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in some ways, the so the reverse thing is not whether third parties will qualify for the presidential debate, but also, I mean, historically, third party candidates bleed bleed support the closer you get to election day. So the interesting question I will have is if that bleeding starts, and where do those voters go to? Yeah. Well, my my friend was criticizing Weld for having what appeared to be a glass of Chardonnay on the Acela at eleven o'clock in the morning, and I said, "Hey, man, if you were." If you were in the position that he's in, I mean, wouldn't you be doing vodka shots starting at 8 a.m.? <laughs> you know. And on that note. And on that uh, note, um, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, and um, happy end of August to everyone. Yes, have a good uh, Labor Day weekend, and uh, talk to you all in the fall. Talk to you in the fall. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. 
You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.